The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. This is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of December 9th, 2019. On this week's show, Banner Society Spencer Hall will join us to discuss college football's anticlimactic championship weekend and the hopefully climactic college football playoff. The Athletics' Wozni Lambre will also be here to talk about the surging Los Angeles Lakers. And finally, The Wall Street Journal's Louise Radnofsky will be here to explore figure skating's strange obsession with the music from Schindler's List. Joining me in Slate's Washington, D.C. studio, Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak. In a few seconds of panic, hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. We had a good live show. We're going to now back promote the live show. That was good. It was going to be good, and then it, in fact, was good. You cannot buy tickets to the live show at Slate.com. You can listen to it uh, wherever you get your podcasts. You can do that. Good afterballs. Good afterballs. Guest was great. Don, Don Harper Nelson. Yeah. We're big Don Harper Nelson fans now. Going to hope to bring her back on the show in the spring as she is mounting her comeback. And this show is going to be good, too. Yes. You can't buy tickets to it, though. No. Just continue listening. Stefan, we do actually have one thing to announce, which is that we're going to do a Colin show, year-end thing. We're at least going to get Colin questions. It'll be up to it's our discretion whether to do the Colin we'll show. probably do a Colin show. Yeah. But, you know, we should probably give people what the phone number is. 77-HANG-UP-10 is the phone number. Ask us about sports conundrums, sports dilemmas. Quandaries. Ooh, I love a quandary. Get a few quandaries in there. And yeah, we'd like to hear from folks out in the listening audience. It's been a minute since we did one of these, but they're always a good time. I guess we did do that parenting question one, but that wasn't with uh, voicemails. We haven't done this in a while. I'm going to stick to that. 77-HANG-UP-10. Give us a call. We'd love to answer your questions. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Over the weekend, the College Football Playoff Committee gathered together and decided in its infinite wisdom that the only four major conference teams that finished with less than two losses would make it into college football's four-team playoff, that Oklahoma, which had one loss, would get the number four seed, and that the three undefeated teams, LSU, Ohio State, and Clemson, would be seeded in that order, which corresponds to their strength of schedule. Controversy! Seems pretty straightforward, and yet the sport of college football is all about controversy. Controversy! And, and disrespect. So let's get mad anyway. Joining us now is the angriest man on Skype, Banner Society, Spencer Hall. What's up, Spencer? So angry. Infuriated. Like, how dare you give us four good teams? That's not what I've expected. What I expect is one amazing team, one complete crap team that played an easy schedule, one team that squeaked in on reputation, and Alabama. (laughs) It's a bad week for the eight-team playoff crowd. I saw some people, you know, I guess respect to the people who are like eight-team playoff or bust, no matter the facts Mm -hmm. on the ground, people throwing their brackets around. Like, we could be just a few weeks away from LSU versus Memphis. We could be. It it could happen in that universe. I endorsed the 16-team playoff bracket three weeks ago, and you scoffed. Would have been good three weeks ago. Why did you why did you pick the one piece of candy you knew I couldn't put down by putting LSU and Memphis <laughs> on the same field? Like like a 48-47 game that 
features two fan bases that I adore and almost zero ratings guarantee. That's my dream. <laughs> and and you had to put it out there as part of the playoff. I I have counter arguments for all this, you know, because I'm I'm really a I can't control this person. I know that's not what gets you. That's why I'm not on sports talk radio very often, right? Is man, I remember that guy saying that this thing was the thing we should do. I'm kind of a nihilist with this. I'm like, I don't know. Jerks control all of this. So I have to make the best of it, even though I can tell you what would be cool to do, which would be an eight or a 16 team playoff. But I have a 14 playoff right now. And the cool thing is I don't have to watch Baylor. (laughs) I don't have to watch Baylor football. I don't have to watch a team that is brilliantly managed, but that does things like, I don't know, they'll go like one for 22 on third down, still be within three points. And I say, you know, theoretically, this is really interesting, but I don't have to watch it, do I? That quarterback's last name was Zeno, right? <laughs> the arrow himself, yeah. And he completed only two passes and both were for 80-yard touchdowns. <laughs> the, we have a new paradox, Stefan. It's the Costco quarterback, man. You got to buy in bulk. <laughs> My favorite subplot of this year, but also of, of the run-up to uh, the playoff, Stefan, is the Dabo Swinney disrespect card. He's so mad. He's so mad that they're number three. They're the defending national champion. They've won all these games in a row. Spencer's uh, Banner Society website noted that Dabo, when asked why the ACC does not get as much respect nationally, answered the media. Who else? It's a conspiracy. So he's upset that they should Virginia been, is really good, but the media won't tell you. Number two instead of number three, that would have made a big difference. I think he, he thinks they're, they should just be in another tier like not represented by uh They shouldn't integers. have to play in the first round. It right. should be a three-team playoff, and they should be passed right through to the finals. <laughs> he did this this weekend, Stefan, and it was amazing. Looking at the college game day crew as accommodating and charitable group of people towards uh, not only, I guess, Clemson football in particular, but towards management, right? Towards Dabo, towards the sport in general. This is what You're they're gonna- paid to do. You're not going to get a lot of sharp elbows. You're not going to get an inch of pushback from anyone on that set, right? Live, at least. That's not going to happen. And Dabo looks at the camera and when asked about the number three spot says, well, y'all make it so easy for us to feel this way. Yeah, sure, man. Looking at the looking at the Politburo and saying, you know, you know, if you just if you just got with the program, y'all, if you just. If you just endorsed what we were doing here, maybe the premier could get some things done. Well, when you have three undefeated teams, you're going to look at the one that barely beat North Carolina, the one that beat no ranked teams until they beat number 24 Virginia by 800 points uh, in the last game. That is a, a thing that I find amusing, Spencer, is this idea that if you beat a team really badly, then that makes that team look bad. But also, if you don't beat them badly enough, that makes you look bad. There is this kind of like titration that that needs to happen. And Clemson just beat up the ACC so badly that it made it very clear that this league uh, stunk. They should have kept it a little closer. What All you need to do is walk in and just say, we're Florida State in the 90s. That's it. Just walk in and say, hey, that's what we are now. Historically, if any of this is hard for anyone to understand, we're Florida State in the 1990s. We're both really good and we're playing in a conference that can't really keep pace with what we're doing at all. Doesn't mean we're not good. 
It just, in fact, it probably means we've got a little less mileage than everyone else who's had to, I don't know, fight their way out of the Big Ten or the SEC. By the way, Clemson did face an, AC, an SEC team this year, and they embarrassed them. Yeah, I guess South Carolina counts. It's a, it's also a little bit of like UNLV in the 90s, where we kind of ignore them Until. during the season because it's not interesting. And then, oh, the tournament's here. This team has every good player. Right. Yeah, nobody gives them credit for being efficient, right? That Clemson, in their championship years, they've done this over and over again. They take kind of the first six weeks of the season to muddle things out. They really sort of get momentum over the next six weeks. And then once they hit, you know, championship bowl playoff time. Oh, and I should also say South Carolina time. That's the all their joke in all of this, right? That that by the time Clemson has got everything figured out and they're really beginning to put some, you know, horsepower through the system, uh, they get to just roll through South Carolina <laughs> and pave them as a demo on the way to the championship game uh, and bowls slash playoff. Uh, before we leave Dabo behind, I mean, does this martyr complex do anything for Clemson? I mean, does it energize the players? Does the fan base care that there are three instead of two? Or is Dabo as transparent to others as he is to us? I don't think he is. I think it's pretty transparent. I think the players know. They just know that this is what he's supposed to do, right? That's what, in his head, that's what he's supposed to do. And the the coach isn't sacrosanct to the players, particularly the head coach. I, we overestimate the level of contact that players get with the head guy. The person that the players are seeing most often is the position coach. The position coach is the one that they have the most contact with, uh, probably second actually to the strength coach, right? The strength coach is the guy who half the year runs the program. And if you haven't noticed, strength coaches tend to be very uh, personable in that they like to get their person in, in the face of your person and yell a lot. So uh, the head coach, what they're saying, it's sometimes treated with, I, I think, a healthy distance by the players just because they, they don't they don't see him a lot. That coach has got a lot of the responsibilities and the degree of inter individual interaction can vary a lot. Also, they're college students and, you know, college students are corny. They know what's up. <laughs> they, they know they know Dabo's doing a wrestling bit, right? About half of them probably watch SmackDown. So they're familiar. Shall we talk about LSU? I'd love to. I would love to, too, Spencer. I'm agnostic, but go ahead, <laughs> fellows. We're going we're gonna to change that, Stefan. We're coming. <laughs> <laughs> Do we think that Joe Burrow is going to win the Heisman by the biggest margin ever, supplanting O.J. Simpson? Man, I hope so. <laughs> the play where he evaded that big Georgia dude twice and then hucked it mm -hmm. downfield to Justin Jefferson was really good. And I think... You did a good rundown of the LSU offense and, and Burrow, Spencer, and how a lot of this is about scheme and putting all of LSU's great skill players in position to succeed. And yet, there's also this quarterback who not only is like accurate on normal plays, but is able to do amazing things on broken plays. And that's how you get an undefeated team. Yeah, they did a lot of things that are, you know, I, I, watched, um, I watched a lot a lot of Joe Burrow footage. And the fun part about Joe Burrow is this, that they could reverse engineer him from spectacular play to normal play. He was always capable, even in LSU's very limited Paleolithic offense in 2017, 2018, right before they made this big switch. 
um, he was very capable of doing these kind of things. It was just the the little withdrawals from the defense's bank account on first down. Like LSU figured out something real basic, right? Generally, you should pass on first down, um, and that second and two is a much easier down uh, than second and eight. Why don't you just go ahead? You know you can run for like two to four yards, right? LSU has always been able to do that. Why don't you do that on second or third down as opposed to trying to get it on first and second? And that, uh, with that, they took LSU. Like LSU's always had running backs everywhere, right? Running back at wide receiver. You got a running back at tight end. You got another running back at quarterback, <laughs> right? Um, they, they just sort of said, well, wouldn't it be smart to go ahead and give these dudes the ball, right? And then when you have exceptional guys like Jamar Chase, there's absolutely no reason not to spread them out and get them one-on-one. See, this is all like – they had all the right stuff. They just weren't putting it in the right order, right? The way I the way I put it was that you know they were trying to bake a cake by throwing flour and eggs into a campfire, right? <laughs> You're like, the right ideas are there, right? There's heat. There's ingredients. You, you just have to change the sequencing, right, and get past some sort of hoary old offensive orthodoxy in order to get to what you needed. And, and now – now look, they're they're indestructible, unstoppable, terrifying. Which came first then? Was it a recognition that Joe Burrow was getting better at the end of last season and that we should change the our ossified 1980s offensive play calling structure or that something changed inside LSU's coaching staff that there was a general recognition that we're playing an outdated kind of football? I, mean, I think it was both, yeah. Yeah, and there's a lot of signs that all kind of pop up at the same time. If you'll remember, there, there are false starts at this. Um, they changed the offense by by hiring Matt Canada. Matt Canada didn't get along with the rest of the staff. The rest of the staff didn't get along with him. Um, that really didn't gel. When I mean, you get to a lot of these kind of like big coaching switches, a lot of times they are personality-based in terms of whether they work or whether they don't work. One thing that really pushed the change towards hiring Joe Brady and you know in particular like all of these concepts from the Saints right and all of these NFL concepts they all come from Joe Brady they don't come from their co-offensive coordinator Steve Ensminger who's just a you know like a he's a college football lifer he's you know been really good in the run game but um he is an old school dude who really I don't think has the sort of hand with the passing game obviously that Joe Brady has the reason by the way Mississippi State started all this for LSU in terms of getting Joe Brady because uh, Joe Moorhead came in at Mississippi State and uh, Ed Ogeron said, I need to know everything about run pass options because Moorhead had worked at Penn State and at Fordham and uh, had a very impressive run pass option game. Right. So when they went back down to the Saints, well, if you remember, Ogeron coached for a while, went to the Saints and said, asked their staff, said, hey, listen, who do you know who's all up on run pass options? And I'm like, well, that'd be our, our guy, Joe Brady. Right. Because he had some. He had some exposure to it. I believe he was with uh, Moorhead at one point coaching. And it's as simple as this. Ogeron heard Joe Brady do a whole thing on run pass options and said, we got to get this guy. And Ensminger, because uh, he's smart and likes paychecks, said, you know, yeah, that's cool. Why, why don't we get him to put a passing game in and I'll just sit here and call the run plays. And and voila, that's, that's kind of how we got here. That's like the little – that's one fascinating little sub-history is that – uh, a six and six Mississippi State team that won its game because Old Miss had a player pretend to uh, pee on the field like a dog 
Well, that oh, we know all State, about that. <laughs> yeah, that Mississippi State team is sort of responsible for LSU becoming an offensive volcano this year. It is unusual to go from rooting for a team where you look at the play calling and the play design and the structure and you know actually what the play is going to be just based on formation and you're not like even studying film you're just mm-hmm. like you've watched a game, you've watched the previous week's game but just the way that they you know use shifts and motions and put uh you know the running back and, and tight end out in, out in the passing game and um just you know they're getting the the other team to substitute and getting too many men on the field penalties it's just like the sort of collective football intelligence that's visible where, uh, you know, LSU had never outsmarted anyone Mm-mm. ever. They've like out talented. They've, um, you know, out brute forced other teams. But if you take this talent, I mean, it's just like it's like in baseball when the richest team also has the best front office. It's like not fair. And so, uh, you know, it just seems like. They thought that they were too good to be, that they didn't need to be smart. And I think Coach O, who gets caricatured as this like, you know, go Tigers uh, individual, and he he is that. The fact that he would be the one to recognize that they needed to get smarter and either, in, in order to win, I think was unexpected for everyone. Well, also, this is just putting better players in better positions, and it's pretty simple. Like, yeah, it's, it's not like advanced uh, degree type stuff. No, it's it's very it's very much this. It's okay. It's much easier if my, you know, I can't out muscle you. We're not going to be stronger than Bama, right? So I'll spread you out. Okay, cool. My five up front are better than your four rushing or sometimes better than your five rushing, right? If I can do that, all of a sudden, guess what? I have Clyde Edwards Elair. Clyde Edwards Elair is about 5'8, and it's like trying to tackle a washing machine that can run a 4'5, right? That's. That's something that nobody wants to do. Oh, he can catch too. Okay, cool. So if I just put him out here, all of a sudden he's on a player, a linebacker, who can't touch him. Or a nickel who might be able to catch him. But guess what's going to happen when my nickelback collides with Clyde Edwards-Hilaire? Nothing good for the nickelback, right? It's just a lot of like one Like if I can get Jamar Chase one-on-one, all of a sudden I can't out-muscle you. But I do it one-on-one. And I do it with players who are faster than your guy and certainly have better hands. Oh, and then I start putting play design in. You're done. You're cooked. So they should kill Oklahoma, gentlemen? Uh, They're definitely favored (laughs) by double digits. What say you, Spencer, about Ohio State and Oklahoma, who we have not talked about yet? I mean, one of the big themes of this playoff is transfer quarterbacks, and both of those teams have one. They've been really, really good so far. They were not Ohio State, that is. And Ohio State... Um, and with Justin Fields as their transfer quarterback. Justin Fields has been an excellent passer. He has been a good to great runner when he's needed to be. I think he's got somewhere around 400 yards rushing. So we're not looking at a Jalen Hurts type runner. We're not looking even at, I think, a uh, Joe Burrow type runner, right? But he's a guy who's enormous. Like when he takes off out of the backfield, it looks like you lost an offensive lineman, right? He is a tremendously big child back there. He's huge. And, but with that, the problem that you saw against Wisconsin is this, that, um, he can get sacked. And that is a problem because I don't know if you've watched Clemson play, but Brett Venables, their defensive coordinator and, um, all that four and five star talent on that unit, they're third in sacks in the nation. And that's going to put him behind the chains a lot. If Justin Fields can't get rid 
of the ball. They have something which erases a lot of these problems, by the way. You just give the ball J.K. Dobbins. Like, he's just a Band-Aid, right? Oh, here, just take the ball. You're going to get eight yards. You're going to get nine yards. You're horrible to tackle. Nobody's going to want to touch you in the third and fourth quarter. I don't care how good you are, by the way. This is, again, going back to football's an easy game, and it's simple to understand. Um, You might tackle a really strong guy once. It's going to suck to hit him the 10th, 15th, 20th time. And no one's going to want to do that. Football players are sensible people, right? In the fourth quarter, nobody wants to be the person that hits J.K. Dobbins for the 28th time. Because he's probably hit you 28 times. What do we know about Chase Young versus the Clemson line? Only that Chase Young's not handleable. (laughs) He's not. At one point, like, Wisconsin did a great job on him for a half. That's a really talented team with some very large offensive linemen. Again, don't know if you're familiar with Wisconsin. They make very large offensive linemen <laughs> on the reg. There's a lot of dairy, a lot of USGA supplements going directly into the bloodstream of the people who become Wisconsin offensive linemen. Chase Young got around them eventually in the second half. That's that's You can't scheme him out forever. I don't care how good you are. Um, I don't care if you're Trevor Lawrence. It's There's going to be problems, right? Because he is... Um, just a mutant freaky athlete and you're going to get him for at least two quarters of prime chase young. So yeah, you can take Clemson offensive line out of that. There, there isn't an offensive line in the country that's going to be able to limit his impact. And here's the thing as a defensive end, he only needs two or three plays, right? That's it. Like talk to, like talking to NFL offensive linemen is fascinating because they're like, yeah, I, I have 60 snaps or I have 50 snaps, right? And I have to be perfect on all of them because if I let the defensive end loose in the backfield for two snaps, for one snap, that could be it. Because whatever he does to the quarterback is going to be disastrous. What do you think about a three-team playoff, Stefan? Round robin. Then if they all end Mm -hmm. up tied, one all, just run it back. Could do that, yeah. Flip a coin. That would satisfy everybody. Can we end, though, with a little schadenfreude on how Nick Saban and Alabama's season ended? Thanks to Gus Malzahn tricking the shit out of them. I want dessert. Yeah, that's good. Can we make, okay. can we make jokes about like Megamind Nick Saban not being able to count to 11? Yeah. So Alex Kirshner of your Banner Society did a nice breakdown. So Alabama's losing 48-45. They've just missed a field goal because Alabama misses field goals, which makes me sad. Auburn's punting from their own 26 with what, a minute, two minutes ago? Minute 12. Like minute 12. 12. They put the punter out wide. The quarterback is in the backfield. Alabama gets very confused. They put one unit on, they call the unit to come off, they put another unit on, they've got like 19 players on the field and they're flagged for a, for a too many men on the field. Game over. That was great. No, I enjoyed it. I'd like to see that again, frankly, if I can do that. You know. Also, in the Iron Bowl next year, if both coaches are still in place, uh, Gus Malzahn better run the first play out of a formation with the punter in the slot. Just saying. <laughs> Alabama versus Michigan, though, bowl game to determine the best program of the 2010s. <laughs> Nothing good is happening here. <laughs> Nothing. Because I want to say this as a Florida fan whose team has faced Michigan five times historically and has lost four of them, mostly in bowl games somewhere in Orlando or Tampa. Michigan swells to like 40 times its normal size <laughs> if it's playing somewhere along I-4. Okay. <laughs> against, someone who, against someone who doesn't want to be there. Yeah, like like Superman transported from Krypton to the warming rays of our sun, making him, you know, infinitely powerful. Something about being in central Florida just makes Michigan, uh, you know, and just a, a tremendously better football team than they actually are. Also, when was the last time we saw 
an Alabama team this disinterested and disheartened going into a bowl game. Feels like the Sugar Bowl versus Utah. I know people, but then again, they've also faced in a game like this, they've also faced Michigan State. I don't know if you remember the Alabama-Michigan State game, uh, but local emergency rooms did because <laughs> it was one of the few football games I've ever watched that I wanted to stop. Spencer Hall of Banner Society. Thank you very much. Thanks, y'all. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I will confess that I didn't think this whole Lakers thing was going to really go that great. They've got LeBron. They've got Anthony Davis. They did have to trade away most of their team to get AD. And then they lost out on Kawhi Leonard to the Crosstown Clippers. There weren't that many dudes left to fill out the roster. That meant their big free agent acquisition was Danny Green. They were put in the position of trying to convince America that bringing in Dwight Howard was a good idea. And now, fast forward to Sunday night, the Lakers scored 142 points to move to 21-3 and on the season. Anthony Davis had 50 of those points. The crowd also serenaded fan favorite Dwight Howard, who celebrated his 34th birthday on Sunday. Joining us now is Wozni Lambray, a.k.a. Big Woz. He's a staff writer at The Athletic and a podcaster for the Count the Dings Network. What's up, Woz? What's going on, guys? Happy to be here again. There's been some talk that the Lakers have benefited from an easy schedule was, but they're 21 and three. That counts. Those wins count. This is surprising, right? I'm not crazy. Yeah, it's surprising. Um, I actually, and, and I like to tell people this all the time, especially on Twitter when you're talking to fans and it's like, oh, you're a hater, you're this, you're that. I only root for my own picks and my own vanity. And I actually picked the Lakers to win the championship this year. Um, and part of it was that, you know, like AD is... He's not like a really good all-star player. He's great. He's in, 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 insanely good. I thought there would be a longer sort of adjustment period, if you will, right? But the Lakers' defense out of the gate has been, you know, past anybody's ex- expectations. I would think even their own. Even they didn't think Dwight Howard would, you know, become a spring chicken once again and that AD would be this you know, defensive player of the year type of player. But yeah, it's surprising. Did you see that video where LeBron told a ref that he was going to play defense this year? Yes, I saw, <laughs> I, I saw that video. And, you know, it's one of those things where that wasn't just a, a, a rumor, right? Tom Habistro, our buddy back in like 2013, I want to say, wrote a piece that, hey, LeBron doesn't play defense anymore. So that was six years ago and nothing had really changed in the intervening years. And, you know, with good reason, the guy's shoulders a very heavy offensive burden. Um, he knows the money games happen in April, May and June. So why am I, you know, expending myself on the defensive end in Charlotte in February in a game that ultimately means absolutely nothing uh, so, you know, nobody faulted him for that, but that had become LeBron's reality, specifically in the regular season. But he's ratcheted up his defense by all accounts, and the numbers bear it out, the eye tests bear it out. 
uh, he's he's actually putting forth together some effort there. The Lakers have held their opponent to less than 100 points more times this year than they did all of last year. I mean, that's a lot of AD, but with with LeBron, it's management, isn't it? He's not playing tremendous minutes. They are managing him so that he is able to play defense in April and May and June when well, it's going to matter. Well, one of the benefits of being so shitty last year is he got to rest, rest for huge chunks of the regular season and didn't go to the playoffs. There were no Olympics this year. It was like I taking mean, a year off, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know the other thing about this, which differentiates this team from all of the past LeBron teams since basically Miami, is that there's actually a lot of defensive talent on this team, right? So LeBron doesn't, he can go harder and he's not being asked to guard the best perimeter player or the best power forward on the team. They could put him on the weak link and he can go hard. Like, obviously we've talked about AD, Dwight Howard's reemergence as a as a plus defensive player um is has been nothing short of breathtaking honestly because they got him on a non-guaranteed minimum contract and he's been <laughs> incredible for them but you know guys like Danny Green guys like Avery Bradley even Caruso who a lot of people don't realize cuz he's a white guy essentially on the <laughs> wing but he's a good defender Balding. Right? Don't um, forget the balding bald, part. Yeah. Oh, yes. He's also bald. He's also balding. Um, Kentavious Caldwell-Pope, good defender. Um, they have defensive talent on the team. Kyle Kuzma, not much of a defender, but he's missed time and he's kind of easing his back on um, his way back in. But they've got defensive talent on the roster. And so LeBron's able to coast on his defensive matchup and, you know, he can give maximum effort because he knows he's playing with incredible defensive teammates. This isn't a Kevin Love situation, Kyrie, guys that I don't want to brag on their defense, but they're not known for that end of the floor at all. And they were playing 30 plus, you know, 35 minutes a night, starter, big star minutes. Uh, That's not the case this year with the Lakers. Having AD on defense obviously changes everything. Having him on offense also changes everything. And the Lakers seem to have gone from a terrible shooting team last year with bits and pieces that they strung together in free agency that didn't work to a team that has some shooters, A, and that the floor has opened up. I mean, I, I turned on the Lakers-Blazers game on Friday night just to watch the I watched the first quarter, and all I kept seeing was JaVale McGee dunking alley-oops. The floor <laughs> is wide open. Well, so it's a couple of things, right? Um, I think AD as a playmaker, a lot of people, because let's be honest, not a, not many people were tuning into New Orleans games, right? People are turning their eyes onto AD this season. Throughout the years, like they only made the playoffs like a couple of times in his tenure there. They weren't long runs, obviously part of the reason why he forced his way out of there. Um, but Anthony Davis as a passer, um, he's already built a connection with with JaVel McGee as far as finding him, you know, inside passing, the high-low stuff that they like to do. Uh, but, of course, LeBron's traditionally been a passer. Um, shooting has probably been um, still their weakness as an offensive unit, but it's been better than everybody could have anticipated coming into the season. It was one of those things that people were like, well, how are they going to space, you know, uh, the joke was Contavious Caldwell Pope is a three and D guy with no three, um, you know. But it's they've been able to make it work. One because, like I said, not to belabor the point, but AD is an excellent passer on the interior from the perimeter, and he's doing that from the four man position. And two, um, 
they've just gotten individual excellence offensively from both AD and LeBron. The shooting is coming around. It's actually the last two weeks you've seen better shooting from them. It still needs to pick up if they're going to be an excellent offense. But I think what you're seeing is honestly just the individual brilliance of Anthony Davis and LeBron James. Let's walk through the various reasons why this year was going to be a disaster for the Lakers. Number one for me, maybe not number one, but this was obviously going to be a disaster is hiring Frank Vogel as the coach, who's like their third choice, and then installing Jason Kidd as the top assistant, who has better rapport with LeBron and had been a head coach. Like, this obviously was not going to work and was a dumb idea. And, was we've heard nothing but, like, happiness and rainbow. There's, like, been zero coach controversy, which is, like, the first time ever that's happened with LeBron. Everybody seems to be getting along. And Frank Vogel is not known as the most, like, kind and gentle and non-abrasive coach in the NBA. Like, I am totally mystified that this part of it seems to be working. And maybe we just need to wait for there to be a bump in the road and there to be, like, anonymous quotes about how LeBron's really coaching the team. But, like, so far, it's been uh, amazing. Right. And and you hit the nail on the head about the winning. But I, I actually spoke to Danny Green before the season started. Right. Um, I did a and a with him to just talk about the, the offseason, the upcoming season. And one of the things he said to me was that, you know, people think we brought together some weird personalities when it comes to a Boogie Cousins, a Rondo and, you know, the different <laughs> the, the Dwight Howard, McGee. Like these are guys that have been known to be not exactly sterling locker room reputation but danny green told me before in october early very early october before the season started that the chemistry was incredible uh that you know it's such a veteran laden team all guys have different stories and different things that they can relate to they've all been in the league for so long that it's been easy to gel once they've come together and i'm not gonna lie guys part of me was like really danny green <laughs> you guys have incredible chemistry in the two and a half weeks you've been together but You've seen that bear itself out on the court. And even with into the Vogel point, what a lot of people don't understand about NBA coaching, so much of it is just strictly buy-in. It's strictly just getting these guys to respect what you have to say enough to buy into what you're selling. It almost doesn't matter what you're selling when the talent level yes. is as high as it is on the Lakers, but buy-in. And for whatever reason, I think last season was embarrassing for LeBron. It was embarrassing for AD. Both of those guys really had something to prove this season. Outside of just the Lakers putting together a roster capable of winning, those guys came off of embarrassing stretches last year. AD with the sitting, the way the trade demand blew up. You know, he's the debacle where he's playing 22 minutes at a game at the end of the season, even though he's a top five NBA player. Then, of course, LeBron. Um, you know, the whole thing with the young guys resenting them for basically wanting to get them out of town and how that whole thing crumbled at the end of the season. And he missed the playoffs entirely for the first time since his like second year in the league. Um, Those guys came in with something to prove and they played hard. I don't know that Frank Vogel, I don't want to take the credit away from Vogel, but I think a lot of it is these guys have bought in and are playing their asses off. Right. But the credit goes to him for being able to manage that. I mean, that is the tricky part when you are coaching arguably the best player in the history of the NBA and you're Frank Vogel and then you bring yeah. in another guy who might end up being one of the top five or ten players in the history of the NBA and you're still Frank Vogel. <laughs> yeah, and, and and you know, the Jason Kidd part can't be underestimated, right? The stuff in Brooklyn that he pulled off, what he did to get to Milwaukee, you know, he's sort of known, I don't know if you guys are Game of Thrones fans, but he's sort of known as the little finger 
of the NBA, right? Like always trying to pull strings behind the scenes. Um, I'll never forget in July I was in summer league, uh, and Lebr- and Jay Kidd had had already sort of been in the little media area, but LeBron came maybe five minutes afterwards, and they had a lengthy conversation. <laughs> A really long conversation as if they were they had been friends forever. And I was and I remember my eyebrow going, hmm. You know, like J Kid clearly has the ear of LeBron and vice versa. And as you said, I was the same way. I was like, you're bringing in Frank Vogel. No disrespect to his record with the Pacers. And honestly, he disappointed with the magic, but this isn't exactly, you know, uh, George Hallis coming in, right? <laughs> like this is, this is Frank Vogel we're talking about, and 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 LeBron has a history of button heads with even the great Eric Spolstra very early on in Miami. We saw what happened with David Blatt, right? He has a history of this stuff. So I like you were skeptical, but these guys came out with something to prove. They're playing very hard on both ends, and you know, so far it's kumbaya. Yeah, I mean, the way that this is not going to work eventually is. Uh, an injury to either one of yep. LeBron or AD. They just don't have the kind of superstar depth. And the Clippers are slow playing this season. Like they're 17 and seven or something like that. They're like sitting George and, and Kawhi. Like it's funny that like the Clippers, just by dent of their roster, not by like tradition, they're the Clippers, but they are the ones who are like, we don't care about the regular season. It's just like postseason or bust. And so when it comes down to it, that roster is going to be deeper in terms of quality talent and better rested maybe even than than the Lakers. So I don't think we're saying here was, except for maybe you who predicted the Lakers to win a championship, that, that this start means the Lakers are a title favorite, at least. Or maybe that's what you are saying. Tell us what you're saying. No, I don't think they can be considered title favorites yet, right? I think, like, as you mentioned, talent depth, the Lake, the Clippers absolutely have the talent advantage uh, when you talk about – okay, so with the Lakers, two guys in the postseason that you know you're going to be able to completely count on. it. You basically know on a game-to-game basis what you're going to get from them is LeBron and Anthony Davis, and that's kind of it. What about Caruso? The Clippers – well, uh, <laughs> funny thing, man, Caruso is actually making himself into a quality NBA rotational player night to night, and he does it on both ends, which I think is most important, right? Like he can guard – both wing positions, if you ask him to, he's sneaky athletic guys, and you know he he's <laughs> you know it. he's actually a good rotation player. I think the Clippers, the problem they're going to present to people in the postseason is that they have four, right? Like you can count on obviously Paul George, obviously Kawhi Leonard, but Lou Williams this season has been incredible. He has been the most – he's been the most consistent thing about the Clippers the entire season. He knows what his role is, and he executes it to absolute perfection basically every single night. Um, And, of course, they have Montrezl Harrell, who's also become a dynamite bench player. He's their de facto starting center. He just doesn't start. Zubac starts for whatever reason, but Montrez typically closes out the game and plays a lot more minutes than Zubac. So I think they have four guys, and then – you know, even Harkless, who you could say can be up and down from game to game, he's got postseason experience. Uh, Jermichael Green has been a nice find for them. He's actually, he never used to shoot threes in Memphis with grit and grind, no surprise there. But he's letting them fly in L.A. and he's getting more and more confident in his three-point shot. Uh, you know, and then you got the more ancillary parts like Magruder, like uh, Jerome Robinson, um, guys that are sort of finding their role within the Clippers. But what I think their advantage is, 
They have four guys that you can absolutely count on in any postseason series. The Lakers have two. And if you want to be generous, if we want to say, if Dwight Howard can do this for a full season, they have three. You're going to be really this is, generous This there. is what we're talking ourselves into at this point with the Lakers. What about Danny Green? Generosity. you got to count on Danny Green. Dids won uh, many championships. Yeah. He has, but he's he's even in those championship years, he's one of those guys who will make seven threes one game and one the next. Right? So game to game, you don't really know what you're going to get from Danny Green. Of course, you know, he makes open shots for the most part, but he's not a guy where you're like, okay, I know exactly. I'm going to get 13, 14 points from Danny Green every night. He's actually never been that. What you do know you're going to get is solid perimeter defense, um, extremely great effort in transition defense on the boards. Um, I think on the other end, he's, he's a consistent player, but offensively he's not. I don't think any of us would complain if the NBA Finals were one of those two teams against Giannis and the Milwaukee Bucks. And I'd prefer it to be the Lakers because then maybe we'd have three under the Kumpos in the finals because the third <laughs> brother cost us. Is he still on the Lakers roster? Is he bouncing back and forth to the No, he's still, he's still on the roster. Yeah, he doesn't play, obviously, but he's still on the roster. He could be their uh, Giannis stopper, maybe do some like dirty, br- dirty brother stuff. Curse Adam in Greek a lot. Yeah, it could be. So I think maybe the, the place to end here, was is that like the one risk for all of us and for the entire NBA is just like, do we really want the Lakers to start feeling themselves to the extent that they're clearly feeling themselves? Like you have Kyle Kuzma talking about, oh, the whole league is jealous of us now. It's like they've missed the playoffs for what, 87 years in a row now? Like, are we concerned about the the Lakers uh, becoming ego, the Lakers again too ego, quickly? Ego, ego mania. Look, I think Lakers hubris is one of those things. It's like oxygen or gravity. It's inevitable. Right. Like it's just one of those things that exist. Um, you can go from Kuzma's comments, you can go from uh Jeannie Buss in those leaked emails calling um Steve Ballmer balls, and she's like, Does he not remember what I did to my brother? As if her flunky brother has anything in common <laughs> with Steve Ballmer. Um, you can go to just the idea that the Lakers thank God they hired Vogel, but the idea that for decades essentially um, all they ever did was hire any for every position in the team. Management, coaching was basically like, who can I find in Dr. Buss's Rolodex? Right. Um, it's just Lakers hubris up and down from top to bottom throughout the year. So I, I'm not going to say we're surprised, but I, what I will say as a very selfish, cynical, um, self-absorbed media member it's great when the Lakers are good because they generate the most attention. I know you guys have heard about the ratings dip in the NBA. Please, Lakers, stay good so that we could continue to get ratings and continue to get paid to talk about silly sports. Come on, man. And if you're not rooting for LeBron at this stage in his career to have to at least do well and be on the stage, you are heartless and not really a fan. Heartless. Yes. Come on. Have a heart. LeBron. Root for LeBron. Was you can read your stuff on The Athletic and he your, your voice on the Count the Dings Network. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, guys. This was fun as always. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Spencer Hall of Banner Society will be back and we will be talking to him, Stefan, about the coaching carousel, the coaching Ferris wheel, the coaching teacups of the SEC. We've got Lane Kiffin, the great Lane Kiffin, back in the conference and we've got a new guy at Arkansas that you will want to hear about. If you want to hear that and you're not a member, you can sign up for Slate Plus. Just $35 for the first year. You can do that at slate.com slash hangup plus. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. 25 years ago, Steven Spielberg's Holocaust drama Schindler's List won the Oscar for Best Picture. Later in 1994, on a pro tour after winning a silver medal at the Olympics, American figure skater Paul Wiley performed to John Williams' haunting music from the film. I'm not Jewish, so for me to really get into that music, I have to act, Wiley said at the time. At one point in his routine, Wiley made a Nazi salute with one arm, which he dramatically lowered with the other. He later projected onto the ice images of barbed wire. Superstar Katerina Witt skated to Schindler's List that same winter, and since then, it's been go-to music and skating, used by big names including Johnny Weir, Irina Slutskaya, Yulia Lipnitskaya, and many others. The quarter-century run, though, may be coming to an end. Last week, a figure skating governing body apologized for nominating for Best Costume in its annual awards, a Schindler's List outfit worn by a Russian skater that appeared to be half Nazi SS guard, half concentration camp prisoner, complete with a yellow Star of David over gray stripes. The group claimed that it nominated the wrong outfit, but that didn't slow the media attention and online outrage. Louise Radnovsky covers sports for the Wall Street Journal and wrote about the controversy. She is with us now. Welcome back to the show, Louise. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the why. Why of all the dramatic music available, why have figure skaters performed over and over to the music from Schindler's List? Well, the reason that they give is that it's beautiful music, which it is, that it's meaningful to them, which in some cases it clearly is, and that in some cases they also feel like they have something important to say to their audience by using it. And as you noted, Schindler's List programs have run the gamut from Paul Wiley's, which was done and was very acclaimed in its time, uh, to ones that provoke immediate outrage, usually because the skater has taken a very literal approach uh, to what they're doing, particularly in their costuming. Yulia Lipnitskaya, who became known for doing this routine a few Olympics ago, was you know wearing the red dress that was famous in the movie that Spielberg used to illustrate this young girl who ended up dying in the Holocaust. And then Schindler sees the red dress and it inspires him to save the thousand Jews. And it was kind of this notable scene 
in the film because it's in black and white and this one kind of splash of color. And when Justin Peters wrote about this for Slate back, I think it was in 2014, he noted that this is the marriage of a sport that demands hyper emotionalism and a film that delivers it more than any other in modern times. I think a thing that gets lost, Louise, is like Schindler's List itself was not subtle. So the fact that figure skaters are using it themselves in a non-subtle way, it's, it's kind of in keeping with the material a little bit. And in some ways, the controversy kind of mirrors the controversy around the film at the same time, right? There there were some people, many people who thought that it was wonderful. And there were a handful of people who thought that using it and making fiction out of the Holocaust and winning awards for a movie about the Holocaust were also inappropriate. And it's that I think literalism is where everyone gets tripped up here. You mentioned the costumes in in, in your first answer, and they really have ranged from completely inappropriate to just mildly inappropriate. Skaters wearing costumes with that look sort of torn or smudged or dirty. You mentioned Stars of David and prison camp outfits. Let's listen to a clip, and I think this sort of illustrates where this sort of very surface-level appropriation and analysis of the Holocaust is problematic for obvious reasons. This is from the 2016 World Championships. It was an Italian ice dance couple. You described these dirt-smudged costumes. And let's listen to how the announcers introduced it and the routine began. Welcome back to Boston on the ice now, the second-ranked team in Italy for the past six years. 12th at last year's World Championships. Skating to music from Schindler's List. emotional program and one that they really want to do justice with a, a story like this. They want to do justice with a story like this. You know, taking the Holocaust and trying to transform it into three minutes of figure skating seems to be where this becomes troubling. Well, figure skating is also a sport where it's possible to fall down. And, and they were ice dancers. They didn't necessarily have the same risks as skaters doing triple jumps. But it is one of the many risks that you undertake by skating to Schindler's List, even beyond the risk of whether you're just going to offend people by turning up with it, even beyond the pitfalls that your costume or your use of sequins could entail, you have to go out and perform this program in a way that doesn't mess it up. In other programs, you take a fall, you lose points, but you don't run the same risks there. And, you know, Paul Wiley spoke about this, too. If you're going to go and do this every single night on a tour, you have to bring your all to it every single time. And that's not something necessarily that every skater is in a position to undertake either. So there's a cliche about the NFL that it's a copycat league. This, to me, seems like copycatting, like somebody did it once, Paul Wiley. And then there's just a kind of lack of creativity or this worked once, maybe we'll let's let's do it again. Is that really what's going on here? That is absolutely true of figure skating. <laughs> there are programs that just get so done. Otherwise, it just wouldn't make any sense to me because why would you skate to this music 
in particular, as opposed to any of the like thousands or tens of thousands of things that you could skate to if you weren't just, it's like strangely like the combination of being the most risky thing you could do and incredibly risk averse to just do the same thing over and over again. But it also reflects a sort of denseness too, that you're not really even aware of what you're doing because other people have done it before you. And that the way that figure skaters have tried to make skating to Schindler's list their own is by the costumes, which have grown more and more literal, and that's what's problematic, and also by attempting to sort of tinker with the production itself and make it even more obvious and more heartstrings tugging by making it as historically accurate or at least historically representative as you possibly can. I want to play one more clip, and there are no words in this one, but just listen to the to the beginning of it. This is in 2009. It was a, a Russian team, and the woman is wearing a gray headscarf and gray-striped prison dress. Yeah, that's gunfire. And she covers her ears during it and then takes them off and looks around kind of wide-eyed. That was just bizarre. Yeah. So with this program, you can find it on YouTube. And if you do watch it all the way through, you should probably be warned that it starts in a way that only builds throughout the program. I don't want to spoil the ending, but I also feel like people who are watching it should be warned in advance that it's it's going to end in a certain way. Uh, but yeah, this program had been skated. Uh, the skaters did very well competitively with it. And nobody took from this a lesson that, you know, seven, eight, nine years later, you should be more careful. So why the Holocaust? Or have there been other examples of skaters using tragedy in their programs in an analogous way? There's been a lot of gun imagery in the last few years that appears to be skaters pushing the bar higher and higher on on what is acceptable there. Um, but Yevgenia Medvedeva of Russia also performed a program a few years ago to the soundtrack of Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, uh, a film that uses 9-11 as, as, as part of its plot. Uh, and because you could use audio uh, spoken word at that point, part of her program actually included the voice of George W. Bush booming around the arena, which the program did very well. I found it jarring. It was a little weird. But again, it worked for her, competitively speaking, at any rate. Stefan, you'd be okay with this if the costumes were just normal skating costumes and there were no Holocaust references in the like routine itself and it was just the music. Is that correct? I don't know. I mean, I think so. I mean, it is beautiful music and it does lend itself to skating, but when 500 people have done it before you, maybe pick something of your own. I mean, I don't know. I guess what, what troubles me, I mean, all of it troubles me, but what troubles me is the sort of complete tone deafness on the part, not just of the skaters and their coaches and choreographers, but in the case of this controversy from the last week of the figure skating officials. After this guy Shulapov had skated to this and, and had his costume nominated, and then they said that was it was a mistake, rather than just saying, we think this is a bad idea and maybe skaters shouldn't be skating and appropriating Holocaust imagery for their routines, they kind of 
double down. They defended the skater, Shulapov, saying that that his routine represented the two parts of the life of Oskar Schindler, one being that he was a successful German businessman, and the other was he was the savior of 1,200 Jews. And they said in a statement, the ISU understands that the use of the Star of David can be interpreted as offensive. However, we would like to point out that in his free skating program, Mr. Shulapov skates to the music of the renowned and award-winning movie. I just just maybe set a marker here that we should move on from Schindler's List and other Holocaust movies, by the way. It's not just Schindler's List, is it, Louise? It's not. There was actually a Japanese skater who was uh, performing to the music of uh, a film called Amen uh, this season. Uh, it's beautiful music. It's a pretty inoffensive program, but she wore a dress to do so that had a kind of gaping wound across the waist with spreading blood um, that also raised some eyebrows. It starts to sound like a parody. Like, wh- how could they possibly be doing this? Or how could they they up the ante? Like, I don't think there's necessarily anywhere you can go after the half SS, half uh, prisoner costume. But I guess... There is just something about this sport, Louise, where I don't know if it's the culture or if it's the judges that sort of demands these sort of outsized displays of emotion. And it's a a sport that wants its athletes to be over the top, maybe not in precisely this way, but you can kind of understand a little bit the impulses, all right, how can we just ratchet up the emotion to like the highest possible level. And then this is where it ends up. That's a really good point. I mean, on some level, skaters are more like actors performing in the theater than they are performing on the big screen because the people who are judging them most immediately are several feet away in a very large arena. At home on TV, you see them up close and you can sometimes cringe at a number of things they're doing that don't look quite the same when you see them from far away. But there's also just a a figure skating bubble. Not a lot of people inside figure skating have thought about Schindler's List for years. It's It's another accepted piece in a canon, another role that you might get to play at some point in your career, probably when you're sufficiently mature to be able to do it. Some skaters acknowledge they wait to perform Schindler's List until they're older, although Yulia Litvinskaya is the girl in the red coat was 15 years old. But it is definitely part of the range. And it's only when you step outside of the bubble and you hear other people telling you that they think this is potentially strange to get competitive advantage uh, that you start to think about it. Do you think that this controversy, the latest one, will actually stop skaters from using Schindler's List? I thought at the end of 2016, when there was a huge outcry over actually what was a reality TV skating program done in Russia involving yellow stars and life is beautiful. Uh, another that Holocaust would probably movie. put, yeah, another Holocaust movie that actually also did incredibly well and is incredibly beautiful and is very widely used among skaters, less literally than it was in this case. I thought that that was the moment. Uh, and we almost wrote about this at the time. Uh, and so I'm not sure that if this hasn't, if that didn't warn anyone off, then I, I'm not sure that this would warn anyone off either necessarily. Louise Radnovsky covers sports for the Wall Street Journal. We'll post a link to her story about skating and Schindler's List on our homepage. Louise, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me.
With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And now it is time for After Balls. Schindler's List is certainly overused in figure skating. We've established that. Other music is also overused in figure skating. Yeah. There are many lists. You can get Spotify playlists of figure skating music. Ooh, something new for me to listen to. Yeah, on uh, your commute. As I commute, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, People have done lists of the most overused figure skating music. Let's run one down. This is from the CBC. Carmen. Bizet's Carmen, yes, I would agree. Sw- oh, Bizet's Carmen. The yes. other, not the other Carmen. Yeah. Yeah. Swan Lake, Tchaikovsky. <laughs> Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake, not the other one. Yeah. Romeo and Juliet, Moonlight Sonata. These are all your classics. Yeah. Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's bad. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty bad. Tosca. Yeah, Schindler's List isn't looking so bad when you when you run down this list, Stefan. That is, that is true. I think Phantom of the Opera is probably the one that annoys me the most. On that list. Do you want to do phantoms? Sure. Stefan, what is your phantom parentheses of the opera? At the live show last week, I afterballed about endangered minor league baseball team names, but it took many twists and turns to get to the rumble ponies and trash pandas. Here's my original idea for last week's afterball brought to you now this week. An expansion team in the National Women's Soccer League last month announced its new name, Proof Louisville FC. Louisville is, of course, known for its bourbon industry, so the locals decided to go with a name honoring that heritage. I think it's neat. Pun intended, the president of the Louisville Sports Commission said, three fingers neat. Now, this seems ill-advised to me from a marketing standpoint for one simple reason. Some significant percentage of the fan base for women's pro soccer teams consists of adolescent and pre-adolescent girls and their families. Consuming hard alcohol is probably not the main message you want to be sending to young fans. But they did it, so Proof Louisville is probably going to need an education campaign. So, kids, proof is a measure of alcoholic strength. The higher the number, the stronger the drink. Now let's use our Merriam-Webster dictionary app to look up the word neat. When referring to alcohol, neat means without admixture or dilution, straight. So get a glass. Go to mommy and daddy's liquor cabinet, start pouring out some of our sponsors' fine Kentucky bourbon when it reaches the height of three of daddy's fingers. That's three fingers neat. Can't wait to meet Proof Louisville's mascots, Josh, Shot Glass, Fifth, Flask, Wild Turkey, and Blow, which is what dad will have to do when he's stopped by the cops on the way home from the game if he drinks multiple fingers neat at the game. Of course, the marketeers tried to spin Proof Louisville as not just about alcohol. The sports commission guy said that Proof, quote, defines our community where we are at this stage of our life cycle as a city. We're proving every day that we're growing and that we belong in the upper echelon. Oh, God. Uh, Just admit that you're trying to sell a jersey sponsorship to Jim Beam and get on with it. I have a side question, though. Would you say we're taking the kids to see Proof tonight 
or we're taking the kids to see the proof tonight. Because proof in this context is what's known as a non-count noun. So you wouldn't use the article, but just saying proof sounds pretty dumb. I don't know. To be determined, I guess. The fans will choose. Prove it. Anyway, Proof Louisville got me thinking about other team names that would be regulated by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. I could be missing some, of course, but I came up with these four, the Baltimore, later Washington Bullets of the NBA, and three baseball teams, the Minor League Durham Bulls and the Major League Milwaukee Brewers and Houston Colt 45s. I'm willing to grandfather the Brewers and Bulls. Brewers refers to Milwaukee's beer-making history. There have been baseball teams in Milwaukee named the Brewers since the 19th century. Beer and baseball, yada, yada, yada. Bourbon and soccer, not so much in terms of their relationship. The Bulls were named for Bull Durham Smoking Tobacco, a brand of loose-leaf tobacco that dates to the 1850s. The team was known as the Durham Tobacconists at their founding in 1902 and changed it to Bulls a decade later. The Bull Durham brand died 30 years ago. Most people at this point, nationally anyway, probably wouldn't even know that the team is named for tobacco. Lots of teams were named the Bullets in the first half of the 20th century. The pro basketball team dates to the 1940s, possibly referring to the old shot tower in Baltimore where molten lead was cooled to make bullets. When he decided to change the name in the 1990s, team owner Abe Pollan said he was concerned about gun deaths and the assassination of his friend, Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, but it's equally plausible that the franchise, which sucked, used gun violence as a pretext for a rebranding. Finally, the Houston Colt 45s. Fans sent in 12,000 suggestions in a contest to name the 1962 National League expansion team. Rebels was the most popular. Colts was picked by team and city officials, but the team changed it to Colt 45s because it wanted to make it clear that we're talking about guns and not the young horse team executive said the Colt 45 revolver, a news report at the time said, was made famous by Western bad men, cowboys and law officers during Texas's early days. Colt 45s lasted just three years before the team became the Astros. In 2015, a USA Today blogger wrote that because we can't have anything nice, the awesome original name was changed for obvious gun related reasons. The name actually was changed because of a marketing dispute with the Colt Firearms Company, Colt had originally approved the name, but objected to the team sub-licensing the right to use it on novelties and souvenirs. The Colt 45s may be dead, but fortunately, their memory lives on in the original team's fight song. Let us listen, Josh. Shoot them down, Houston Colts. Down a shot. Proof Louisville. Josh, what's your phantom? On Sunday, at long last, and seven years after his death, Marvin Miller was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Miller was the executive director of the Major League Baseball Players Association from 1966 to 1982. More than almost anyone in any sport, he's responsible for what we now describe as player empowerment. 
It was under Miller's leadership that baseball players killed off the reserve clause, which kept them contractually bound to whichever team wanted to contractually bind them. And he also ushered in free agency, winning players the freedom and the dollars that they deserved. The thing that killed the reserve clause was the Seitz decision, in which arbitrator Peter Seitz ruled in favor of pitchers Andy Messersmith and Dave McNally in 1975, granting them free agency. Miller played an instrumental role in that arbitration hearing. He was also involved three years earlier when the Supreme Court ruled against the players in the case of Flood versus Kuhn, that is, the player Kurt Flood versus baseball commissioner Bowie Kuhn. In that case, Justice Harry Blackman wrote the majority opinion, keeping the reserve clause in place. It was a weird and extremely flowery decision, which begins, it is a century and a quarter since the New York Nine defeated the Knickerbockers 23-1 to on Hoboken's Elysian Fields, June 19, 1846. Blackman includes a footnote in his opinion that's just the poem tinkered ever to chance. And strangest of all, he includes a long list of players, a list he describes as the many names celebrated for one reason or another that have sparked the diamond and its environs and that have provided tender for recaptured thrills, for reminiscence and comparisons, and for conversation and anticipation in season and off season. In a footnote to that, he added, These are names only from earlier years by mentioning some one risks unintended omission of others equally celebrated. But I'm going to take that risk now, Stefan. And I'm going to read the list in its entirety because it is the original and I'd argue the ultimate exercise in remembering some guys, even if it was used ultimately and confusingly to keep baseball's reserve clause in place, delaying Marvin Miller's victory by three years. Regardless, here now, courtesy of Justice Harry Blackman. Ty Cobb, Babe Ruth, Tris Speaker, Walter Johnson, Henry Chadwick, Eddie Collins, Lou Gehrig, Grover Cleveland Alexander, Rogers Hornsby, Harry Hooper, Goose Goslin, Jackie Robinson, Hannes Wagner, Joe McCarthy, John McGraw, Deacon Philippe, Rube Marquardt, Christy Mathewson, Tommy Leach, Big Ed Delahanty, Davy Jones, Germany Schaefer, King Kelly, Big Dan Brothers, Wahoo Sam Crawford, Wee Willie Keeler, Big Ed Walsh, Jimmy Austin, Fred Snodgrass, Satchel Page, Hugh Jennings, Fred Merkel, Iron Man McGinnity, Three Finger Brown, Harry and Stan Kowaleski, Connie Mack, Al Bridwell, Red Ruffing, Amos Rusi, Cy Young, Smokey Joe Wood, Chief Myers, Chief Bender, Bill Clem, Hans Lobert, Johnny Evers, Joe Tinker, Roy Campanella. Where's Chance? I'm just realizing. Evers and Tinker. No chance. Roy Campanella, Miller Huggins, Rube Bressler, Dazzy Vance, Ed Rush, Bill Wamsgans, Clark Griffith, Branch Rickey, Frank Chance, Cap Anson, Nap Lajaway, Sad Sam Jones, Bob O'Farrell, Lefty O'Doul, Bobby Veach, Willie Cam, Heine Groh, Lloyd and Paul Wainer, Stuffy McKinnis, Charlie Comiskey, Roger Bresnahan, Bill Dickey, Zach Wheat, George Sisler, Charlie Geringer, Epa Rixie, Harry Heilman, Fred Clark, Dizzy Dean, Hank Greenberg, Pie Trainer, Rube Waddell, Bill Terry, Carl Hubble, Old Hoss Radborn, Mo Berg, Rabbit Moranville, Jimmy Fox, Lefty Grove. And then, in conclusion, Justice Harry Blackman, master of self-awareness, says, and I quote, the list seems endless. I'm surprised that he stopped. He could have included a few more African-American players. I counted two. Uh, you know, Justice Harry Blackman, wrong on the merits, wrong on the details within the merits. But right about remembering some guys. Yeah, definitely was. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. Listen to past shows. 
and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, perhaps you just might want some more hang up and listen. And our bonus segment this week, Spencer Hall discusses the intricacies and majesty of SEC coaching. Sam Pittman's an offensive line coach. He looks like an offensive line coach. His head is perfectly square. His body is enormous and perfectly square. He's like Coach Minecraft, right? If you look at him, he's exactly what you would imagine an offensive line coach should look like. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangout plus. For Stefan Thatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty and some guys. And thanks for listening. Including Epirixi. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.